Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 40 of Renar Voice. My name is Robert Swatala, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Renar Voice. And with me is my co-host, my friend, and my colleague, Jeff Mazone. How are you, Jeff? Good morning, Robert. What's going on? Good to see you. Good morning. So two things. Two Uh-oh. things. Like, we're, we're over the hill now. Uh, age-wise or, or well, I already oh, am. Episode I already am, but yes. side, yeah, yes. big four oh. I just noticed that when, when I was prepping for the show. Congratulations. We're doing it. We wow. we are doing it. Yep. Forty's not too bad, not too shabby for a bunch of uh, um you know <laughs> I don't know what you'd call us, in novices, inexperienced. Yeah. You know? I think the, the word they would use in New York is schlep, a bunch of schleps. That's, I think that's, that's a great that's, word. Thank yeah. you for, for yeah, bringing yeah, that yeah. back. Yes. Good, yes. good Yiddish word really cuts <laughs> to the core. You know? Yes, it really does. So congratulations. That's really cool. I know it's been a fun journey for both of us. So yes, um, yes. yeah, yeah, it's pretty neat to have that opportunity. But I wanted to also just say happy summer to you. So we are in the the, the heart of the beginning of summer. So yep. um, I'm excited about that living in the Northeast. It's nice not to wake up to snow. Uh, finally, um, there you go. Think it was just last month. But um, so yeah, happy summer to you. Do you have any big plans for the summer? Uh, nope. I think we're just, uh, we're in Virginia now, as you know, so I think I'm preparing my wife with her curly Hispanic hair to embrace a new level of humidity that she's never experienced before. <laughs> Dr. Hosworth is nodding her head. She seems yeah. to know that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a whole, whole nother level of uh, UV for you in that, uh, that very Irish, you know, white skin of yours. Yes. Yeah. Well, we've talked about just that. Be, numerous just be times. careful. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Fly, fly regularly. Hey, you know, I was thinking we haven't really talked a lot since graduation. Sure. And, and you know, I was thinking that maybe when you finally met me in person, that you were just really underwhelmed. Underwhelmed? Why do you say that? <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like we don't talk as much anymore. Oh, since oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, no, no, no. That, I got my my I, seeing you was enough to hold me over for months. So. Okay. Oh, that's yeah. Okay. I just figured there's like two years of build up, and then when we finally met, it's like, nah, he's not that cool. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. No, no. Didn't think that at all. So. I'll have to call uh, you later. It's, I, I get, that's my rejection fears coming yeah, out. Here, I know. You know? I, yeah. I know what it is. We've already checked Well, hey, anyways, enough about us. My goodness. Oh, my goodness. Our listeners are like, come on, guys, move on. Yeah. Move on. We got better things to do. So, Jeff, without further ado, could you introduce our guest for today? Yeah. So, today's topic, we're going to be talking about um, the imprisoned population, which we recognize is something that we haven't treated. Uh, well enough and and all the different topics that we want to talk about and i think in particular it's important because our lord you know he he tells us that this is the population that you know you did it for the least of me right when you did it for them you did it for me so like visiting the imprisoned but in, in the context of our um profession like serving that population and we did have dr kevin hall on a few months ago to talk about play therapy in prison that was a lot of fun talking about bringing action figures and legos through security in a in a prison and what that was like for him and then like just playing just in our minds like you know just inmates playing with action figures like star wars action figures was like really a lot of fun to talk about um and today we have dr hausworth on um we wanted to find 
just another expert at Liberty to talk about this population. So we're excited to have her on today. And uh, Dr. Hasworth actually began her counseling career working with individuals housed in forensic settings, such as correctional facilities and adult detention centers. Her primary clinical experience includes working with clients who are diagnosed with serious mental illnesses and substance abuse disorders. She also has experience working in an inpatient psychiatric hospital, leading group therapy and facilitating individual and family sessions. She was a teaching assistant for two years while completing her doctoral degree and enjoys teaching classes that are early in the master's program, such as the counseling skills class here at Liberty. She's also currently working in private practice, seeing clients both in person and over telemental health as she is licensed in Virginia. So we're very happy to have Dr. Kristen Hosworth here with us. Good morning, Doc. So good to have you. Good morning. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. So we just want to get right into it. Um, and before we kind of get into the, the nitty gritty of it, I, I guess just a question that, that we both have for you, Doc, is what got you interested working in this population? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's probably a twofold answer here. And one is that I was very obsessed with the X-Files when I was younger. So granted, that's going to take you into a whole other <laughs> dimension as well in terms of some of the alien content. That's, but That's great. <laughs> um, I was very interested in kind of that FBI aspect and behavioral sciences, right? So as we think about working with the populations who have mindsets and thought processes that are so foreign to our own as we think about things like serial killers or violent sex offenders. I know that's not necessarily everybody's forte, but it was very fascinating to me of sort of what makes these people tick, right? What is going on inside this individual that leads them to engage in these types of behaviors? So while I didn't really pursue the FBI approach, I took more of the like psychology and counseling approach. Um, I still got to meet some interesting people working in the correctional setting. Um, but I also feel like I had a little bit more personal experience in the sense that I ended up having friends who ended up connected to the criminal justice system in some ways. And, um, and I didn't really think about this until I was reflecting on some of the questions that you guys had sent to me, but I had a friend who ended up being convicted of a sex offense. And so just the nature of like knowing somebody in a non-professional setting, somebody that I was just involved with as a friend, socially, we worked together, and finding out that that had happened to that individual um, or that he had engaged in some behaviors that got him connected with the criminal justice system um, was really just eye-opening to me of this can happen to people that you know, right? We sort of think of it as this is always people who are so outside of our circle or, you know, that's maybe a lot disconnected from us, but there are some people who are struggling with things internally that can be much closer to us than we realize. And that really kind of brought it home for me. Yeah, Doc, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. And and just to follow up on that, you know, as Jeff mentioned earlier, when we had that interview with Dr. Hall, he, he definitely demonstrated that this is a very unique population to work with. Uh, and, and certainly a probably a small percentage, but a but a uh, a marginalized and fringe percentage, which I don't think it's often the, the necessary attention and care that they that they probably deserve. So could you just share with me kind of that setting? It's going to look differently than our everyday everyday private practice in the counseling room type of session. Could you just compare those two and what it's like to work with that population than maybe most of our listeners who are more maybe in that kind of office setting? 
Yeah, I was reflecting on just the process of getting inside the institution that I worked in. So I, I worked in two different prisons and a jail. Um, and so the first prison was a little bit smaller. The second prison where I was working as a psychology associate, and so that's where I was on a mental health unit, working with primarily a caseload of individuals with serious mental illness. I had to first go through three different buildings just to get to my building. So when you think of the process of walking inside a prison facility, there's a lot of doors closing behind you that you don't have control over. So I don't know if Dr. Hall mentioned this as well, but I had at least seven doors that I had to go through that I didn't have control of the entry or exit. I had to wait for a correctional officer to open those doors for me. And so a lot of what people talk about when they work in a facility is that sound of the door closing behind you and knowing that you have a lot less control over your ability to leave, right? So first, that's a whole different mindset than when you walk into a private practice where you might have you know, your own key to open the doors um, and you can come and go as you please. So I had at least about a quarter mile walk to get to my building. I walked through the front entry where there was the initial shakedown and then went into the next building that was kind of the, I don't even know how to describe this well, um, the institution was so large, it was almost like three institutions connected in one. Um, and so then there was kind of the main hub of S2, the second section that I worked in. And then I still had to leave from there and go to my building. Um, upon entry in my building, I would have to swipe a card into the elevator, go upstairs to where our offices were located. And my office was a former closet. <laughs> so I did not have any windows except for one in the door, which we were thankful to have because correctional officers who were walking by could look in and make sure that things were as they should be. But we also had the prison laundry for that building on our same floor. And so frequently you could hear, you know, laundry, washer, dryer outside. So if you just think about the environment that we want to set up for counselors, uh, not always the most welcoming, of course, being in a closet, and then not always the quietest. Sometimes you could hear the laundry. Sometimes you could hear things from the unit itself since we were, we were connected to the main residential unit, but still a little bit separate from that. So there was a door that a correctional officer would have to open or close for us before we actually walked into the unit itself. Um, but that also meant that the offenders could walk by and there was a window in that door so they could sort of look into our area. And sometimes it felt like being in a fishbowl. People could be walking by and sort of seeing what you were doing, seeing what you were up to, even if you weren't in a session with them at the time. So there was definitely that sense of being observed in a way that you wouldn't normally have in your traditional outpatient private practice. Just as a follow up, I, I, I'm listening and I'm imagining that that sound and, and I got to imagine the, the can you just talk to us what that was like maybe the first couple times because I, I got to feel that there was some type of emotional reaction to you just walking in and experiencing that for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. I think a little well, maybe a lot of anxiety, right, of not knowing what what this was going to be like, what would happen if you know, anything was like a dangerous situation that I would have to try to get out of. Um, and a little bit of fear, a little bit of uncertainty. Um, and then that curiosity of like, can I trust the staff who I work with enough to know that they will be be there, be paying attention? 
when I needed something to be responded to. So whether that was just opening a door or if, you know, any type of crisis occurred where I really needed some type of assistance. So it definitely took a process, I think, of getting accustomed to that and trying to work through some of those fears for myself and also having coworkers who were kind of going through that similar experience when I worked um, on that licensed mental health unit, I had a colleague who started with me about the same time and we actually shared that office space of being in that same closet area together. Um, since it was a little bit bigger, it was it was roomy enough for two people to be working in there. And so really having trusted staff, I think really helped to make that situation a lot better. Looking back, I can't imagine if I had had colleagues who I didn't feel safe with um, because that would have really changed the experience that I had. You know, Dr. Hosworth, as you were mentioning, kind of just this closet space that you're you're working in. Um, I remember in practicum, uh, one of my classmates was working in some type of facility within the system. I, I can't quite remember, but and we would watch videos of him with his clients, and it was just cinder block walls, you know. And then you'd have like another classmate, and she's got this beautiful office, like professionally designed, and then we've got cinderblock guy you know and it's just like man oh man and you know something i kind of wanted to to get into a little bit with you doc is um i feel like because we might be unfamiliar with this population or because we might judge them uh i mean they they have been judged as being guilty whether or not they are uh but i wonder if we hold like a certain kind of a, a prejudice or um like they're less than than we are those that are not in prison or or just some type of like inequality in terms of like human dignity um yeah like it it hurts my heart a little bit just even like well they don't deserve the same kind of welcoming place that perhaps your your regular outpatient client uh would get and it, it it's striking to me because i mean especially in, in the eyes of our lord like we're created in his image and likeness and we have that dignity. And yet for some reason, maybe we feel compelled that these people don't deserve the same kind of dignity. I just, could you speak to that a little bit at all, just from your experience and especially as a counselor? Yeah, I think I would agree with you. I think there's a tendency for that to occur. And I think that's where if somebody is aware of having those biases, I would probably, you know, not encourage them to work with this population if they didn't think that that could be managed for themselves. But I definitely believe that we don't treat individuals who are incarcerated with that same type of dignity that we would, you know, if we were meeting with them in a private practice, like you said, we would have a very warm, welcoming environment, and yet we don't give that same type of treatment when they're inside a facility. And yet we also know that so many individuals who are incarcerated are experiencing some type of mental health issue. So it almost seems that we have this information going into it. And yet, and this, granted, this could have changed. It was yikes, 10 years ago now that I was working in this prison um, institution. So I don't know if anything has changed since then in that specific area. But yeah, just thinking about the, the private practice that I've worked in and the type of environment that we set up and the type of environment that we had in the prison facility, um, it's basically a night and day difference. And so to expect for those incarcerated offenders to come in and be willing to open up to you, um, it's 
kind of amazing that we would even get anybody who's willing to do that because not only is the environment not very welcoming, but being a correctional staff member, we can also be seen as part of that system that's creating some of that inequality. And if we're not cautious, being that counselor in that role, we can sort of perpetuate the experiences that they're having of feeling like they're, you know, less than human or feeling like they're not receiving that same type of human dignity that they deserve. Um, and so I think we really, if you're wanting to work with that population, there's a lot of that internal self-reflection that needs to take place of, are you able to first check in with your own biases? And if you know that you have any with that population, trying to figure out how are those gonna be managed so that you're able to treat every individual that you see with that dignity when they walk into your office, even if they're staring at cinder blocks when they're talking to you. Dr. Hosworth, you're dealing with offenders, people maybe they've they've done violent crimes, you know, I'm guessing that that's the type of the population you mentioned earlier. Can you just share I, I, I'm going to I'm going to point out the elephant in the room here, what it's like as a woman to go into that environment and deal with that population. Maybe maybe if you could also relate to any type of personal experiences or stories or working with clients on what that was like in terms of maybe some some difficulty at first but then maybe some success or some progress or turnaround as that relation, that therapeutic relationship grew uh, in that instance. Oh yeah, that's a, there's many different outcomes probably from that. And I think uh, part of being a woman, especially a white woman walking into an institution is that there's a lot of obvious differences and a lot of obvious questions of, can I trust that person? Um, I received a range of treatment from offenders in terms of how they responded to me or things that they would say to me. And, and what I mean a range is a range of inappropriate versus appropriate. Um, and I think that the, surprisingly individuals who were like on my caseload who had that more serious mental illness probably treated me better than people who maybe didn't have a serious mental illness and were just making these inappropriate comments to me, if that makes sense. Um, I'm thinking about working in the jail setting where I would walk into the, it was the control area, so it wasn't really in the unit itself, but into the area where the officers were. Um, but the offenders could sort of talk to you through, it was like a little mail slot essentially. And so there was one day that somebody who I didn't really know at all, they weren't somebody I worked with, so not somebody that was known to our mental health staff, um, said something inappropriate as I was trying to talk to the correctional officer in there. And that correctional officer kind of locked down the whole unit, took away their television privileges for the day. So um, I felt very, it's that strange feeling of, you want people to be held accountable and responsible, and yet you don't want everybody to be sort of punished for what one person did. And I think that was sort of the example that sometimes the correctional officers used of, it's not okay to treat people this way. and then it became that blanket sort of punishment of now you're all in trouble because of how one person acted. Now, I don't think that's how we want the system to act overall. So that was that choice that that correctional officer made at that time. Um, but there was a part of me that felt like at least something happened, right? Because I'd had experiences working inside the prison much earlier than when I worked in the jail where people would say things that were very inappropriate. And depending on kind of like 
where I was, where I was walking at the time, you couldn't always identify who that individual was. So there are many times where things would be said and then nothing would happen because you couldn't really figure out who said that. So it was definitely a shift of a little bit of accountability, even though at that point now it's taken a little bit overboard where everybody got into trouble. Um, I feel like I maybe took that question a little bit sideways. So no, that's <laughs> good. part of that original question. Even listening to you answer that, I I guess I'm really moved by your humility because um, yeah, there's a piece there where you've been like, yeah, I felt I felt really validated, you know, that that so and so, you know, really said something inappropriate, probably having to do with you being a woman, and you know, this guard he responded and validated me and everything else, and like, Doc, I didn't hear you say that, you know. Instead, like, I just hear this concern for all the other guys because this one guy said something stupid, you know, <laughs> just like you have every right to feel validated by that correctional officer who, who defended you. It seems like, you know, defended your dignity as a woman. And, and I just, I don't hear you saying that. I, I mean, I, I'm just impressed with your, you're more concerned about the other guys. Um, and I, I guess I'd like to ask doc, if we could like, and because both, you know, Robert and I are, are, residents you know we're new into the profession and and i I struggle with taking things personally (laughs) from my clients you know like even if like i get a client on the phone and they don't want to work with me i like you know like i struggle with that like uh just what's wrong with me kind of thing and uh, so i guess i'd like to ask like how how do you process that for yourself just the very intense experiences like you know robert and i don't have clients saying inappropriate things to us um what Robert might, but I, I don't. So like, uh, yeah, I just, I, I'd love to hear anything you could share about that. Yeah, I think the processing for me has always been trying to find the safe colleagues that I have, which I'm, you know, looking back, very, very thankful that the facilities that I worked in, I had a lot of colleagues that I felt like I could sort of unpack those experiences with. And I mean, unfortunate as it is, some of them had had similar experiences, right? So the institution, the prison that I worked in, there were four of us who were kind of the primary therapists for the unit that we worked on. Two of us were, I guess, younger, (laughs) relatively younger white women, and the other two were relatively older white women. So it was this very clear divide of like kind of this white staff who was working with this primarily African-American population. Granted, we had a, a range of people in there. Um, but if I didn't have that area to come back to and just share with my colleagues about what that experience was like, and again, be validated from them of, oh, that that shouldn't have happened, or um, it's, it makes sense why you feel that way because of what that person said, right? If I hadn't had that, I think that would have been so much more internalized for me that I would have taken it a lot more personally. I think sort of recognizing that this is in some ways the nature of where I was working and I don't want to give it the okay that it was like to be expected. But I think for me, there was some level of I'm going to hear inappropriate things because of where I work. I kind of feel like I knew that walking into it. Um, My father had worked in a prison for many years. He was an accountant in a prison. So I feel like I maybe had a little bit of insight into what that would be like. And also a lot of fears kind of instilled in me from my parents of, wow, this is not a great environment for you to be working in. Um, But I think they kind of recognized that that was, it's a population that I felt called to work with. Um, 
But yeah, so I when I teach like 505 and 512, the acronym Q-tip always comes up. I don't know if you guys were familiar with that from your classes of quit taking it personally. And so that all kind of came together for me of how can I step outside of this situation to see that it's not necessarily about me. I just happen to be on the receiving end of it in that moment. And how can I unpack this with the colleagues who I'm with? Because they're really the ones who kind of live and breathe what this work experience is like. People in my social circle who didn't work there had no clue, right? If you haven't worked inside a prison or you haven't been in that type of like inpatient residential setting before, there's just a familiarity with it that people on the outside don't really have. And so it's a little bit more difficult, I think, for them to understand what that experience is like and also why you would put yourself in that situation to begin with. So to have colleagues who felt that same calling, right, to be able to work with that population, they were better able to help me sort of process through when those more negative experiences happened. Dr. Hosworth, two things I'm taking away from this, two words that are popping in my head, trust. I mean, I've heard you've said that so many times, just all around on how to make it work. And, and I'm also hearing an element of wisdom. Of, of being wise and, and surrounding yourself with people and obviously your surroundings and your environment and just it, you're very very much in touch with the reality and the realness and 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 don't let maybe the situation or the over um, and the environment overwhelm you which I find um, very necessary probably for working with that population so um, I, I just I just kind of my takeaways for that and and and, and uh, you can comment on that but I want to make sure that we get a chance to try and transition because one of the things that we talked about in prepping for this was some of your background in the forensic psychology world and and, and what I want I want to make sure we hit on that because I find that absolutely fascinating and and really um, also how maybe some of that experience um and both worlds have kind of helped you operate in both of those worlds so if you could just share on any of that i know there's a lot there i feel like i'm uh, I'm pulling a jeff and asking 20 questions in one question so i apologize for that but if you can comment on any of that um that i just said that'd be great all right well i appreciate your takeaways i would agree with you i think that trust and wisdom was both very necessary for me to have. And I probably didn't realize it at the time, but looking back can see that how important that truly was. Um, so my background in forensic psychology, I think kind of lended to having more of kind of an assessment and evaluation approach to working with um, the incarcerated populations. What I didn't know going into that master's degree is that it didn't really set you up well for actual counseling. <laughs> Um, so after obtaining my master's degree, I had to like fill in a lot of blanks to take a lot of the more uh, counseling oriented classes. So I took a lot of classes that had to do with evaluation and treatment of offenders. Um, I took one called consultation, triage and testimony. So really talking about how to testify as an expert witness. Um, we learned a lot about conducting evaluations for things like the um, competency to stand trial an individual's mental status at the time of the offense. But again, the piece that I didn't realize is that once you get out into the real world, most of the time it's doctoral level practitioners who are doing those evaluations. So having the master's degree in and of itself didn't set me up really well to be able to do those types of evaluations. 
Um, but it did set me up to being eligible to work in that correctional setting. I had taken I had taken one class in correctional psychology before I started working in a prison. So I'd had a lot of experience with that degree, which looked at kind of the intersectionality of psychology and the legal system. But as far as what it's really like to work in a prison setting, I'd had one class to kind of prepare me for that. Um, so I think it helped to really think through kind of the I guess the investigative factor of how do we really explore what's going on with this person? How do we evaluate what their current functioning is like? What's contributing to that? Um, and really, I guess also with that, that diagnosis side of it. So does this individual have a diagnosable serious mental illness or any type of what would now be our DSM-5 uh, TR type of disorder? Um, or another piece of that is, are they malingering? So are they trying to present as having some type of mental health concern, maybe in order to get uh, placed into a mental health unit where they don't have to have a cellmate? That was something that was a pretty big deal for people um, if they didn't like being in the more general population setting, if they tried to say or appear that they had a mental illness and they could go on to a mental health unit we didn't have individuals housed together, so they would have a single cell by themselves. So for some individuals, I think that was the perk of trying to present as maybe more mentally ill than they were, or trying to present as mentally ill, even if they didn't have a mental illness to begin with. Um, so it also made us a little bit more wary or skeptical of overdiagnosing. I think. We really wanted to make sure that if we saw an individual coming onto the unit for the first time, you know, it might be that we need to take some time to really see how they're acting with other um, offenders on the unit or with the other staff members. But we would sometimes have suspicion, suspicions of, does, is this a real mental illness or <laughs> is there something else contributing to this, whether it's completely falsified or did they have access to some type of substance, which you would think that maybe they wouldn't have access to, but they generally had access to that would then contribute to something presenting as a mental illness that wasn't truly um, wasn't truly organic, was more like a substance-induced type of concern. So it sounds like from that standpoint, that forensic background probably was a definite benefit in working with that population then. Yeah, I think it... I don't know if skepticism is the right word, but I think it gave us that healthy skepticism, right, of just trying to recognize all the different reasons why somebody might present as needing to be on a mental health unit. You know, Doc, I just had this image in my head, and uh, I, I hope this fits, but um, just kind of scaling it back a little bit just to this dynamic that we've noticed, which I guess we should apologize that we didn't really think about and preparing for this episode, but I'm glad that it's emerged. Just, you know, you being a woman within this population. And uh, I don't know if if you experience this or, or maybe, God willing, on the other side of this life, you'll, you'll come to see it perhaps. But I, I wonder what role a therapeutic or healing role you, you may have played in this population of hurting people, angry people scared people, uh, you as a woman, like the tenderness of, of you, um, and the tenderness, a, a woman's tenderness, um, you know, your gentleness, your kindness, you know, your beauty, just like, like beauty saves 
right? We, we know this like from theology, certain theologians talk about this, the, the, the truth, good and beauty, right? And like, I don't know, I just, I just have this image of you just walking into the prison and just your very presence itself being disarming and, and, and inviting and, and, and healing and all those kind of very beautiful, distinctly feminine traits to, to have that femininity brought into this very hostile area but with your self-possession and your trust and wisdom like robert mentioned before like i imagine like you were you were bringing healing to guys without you even having open your mouth which i think is just so remarkable and i'm just so edified that you had the courage to go in there and and with that self-possession and and you know the meek shall inherit the earth right and like the the meekness of which you come into that population i just think it was it, it must have been very impactful there well i i really appreciate you saying all that i feel like at the time i probably didn't have that awareness or <laughs> i wasn't even thinking through of what that what that in itself might bring right but i think there's probably some element of truth to that of just being able to interact with somebody who wasn't in a correctional officer uniform for one thing. I didn't, even though I was part of the system, I didn't really look like the system. Um, I didn't, we didn't have any like uniform that we had to wear or anything like that. Um, and I think part of it really comes back to so much of our foundational counseling skills of just providing that space for people to, whether or not the environment looks inviting, if I can provide that like relational dynamic of being an inviting person to talk to, I think that's, is what starts to kind of break through to people and being able to really just sit there and listen to somebody's story, especially when working in that type of environment, there was such a large, um, I think, fear from a lot of staff of, there's a big word called fraternization. So anyone who works in a prison setting gets very familiar with that word because back in the day, the rule was, if you were talking with an offender for more than like five minutes, you're considered fraternizing. And so then it shifts to this is inappropriate conversation. And yet as a provider of therapy or treatment, of course we have longer than five minute conversations, right? And so um, while we could hold to the therapeutic hour, there were certainly times where we were fitting it in between when count cleared and when they have to go to the next thing. So sometimes that therapeutic hour felt a little bit shorter. Um, Sometimes it was, hey, I really need to check into this, check in with this person before they have to walk outside and get in line for pill call so they could get their medication. Uh, sometimes it was reminding them that it was pill call to go get their medication. Um, so I think, again, it really comes back to really just being as personable as you can while still upholding that boundary of there's a reason why I'm here and it's not to become like friends or a different type of relationship with this person which, you know, unfortunately, that is a, a thing that can happen inside of those facilities, whether you're a treatment person or a correctional officer. Um, so again, there's a very healthy awareness of that too. And then how that can be perceived by even other correctional officers who don't really understand the need for treatment, right? So I'm thinking of one offender who, I mean, every week, if not multiple times a week, wanted to talk to me and our, uh, therapy on the unit was we had to see our individuals for at least one session per month, which doesn't sound like a lot, right, when you're working in this, um, basically a residential unit every day, but that was sort of that bare minimum. And so for this individual to want to be seen weekly, I think the officers were starting to wonder, like, what is going on? Why does this person need to be seen so often? 
he had a very serious psychotic disorder. So a lot of our sessions were me trying to follow along and unpack the story and figure out really where he was at that day. Um, did I share that with the officers? Not to that extent, but that was another piece as we think about confidentiality, right? That the officers sometimes needed to know a little bit of information to just better understand and better be able to work with the individuals on the unit. Um, thankfully, that institution really tried to find officers that were a good fit and could recognize that need so that they didn't put somebody in there who was going to, I don't know, have really super rigid thinking or try to detract from people who are wanting to receive treatment or wanting to engage in treatment because we also had people who had a serious mental illness and had no interest in receiving therapy, right? So it's kind of this wide range of um, even just the willingness, I guess, first to be aware that you have a mental illness and kind of accepting of that, which is a whole other conversation probably, um, but that willingness to engage. So again, as welcoming as we could be, there were definitely still people who had no interest or didn't see a benefit of talking with us. Okay, that is so good. Um, wow. Wow. Just thank you for sharing that. And and it does, I think, no matter what, always come down to that therapeutic alliance, that relationship, you know, being present. And and I just want to say thank you for going into that population, that kind of that forgotten population, especially from an offender world. Uh, you know, it's kind of kind of the tax collector of, of the modern day, if you want to call it that. Right. And so thank you for that heart for just going in and and seeing them, really. And seeing them for the for the humans that they are, and I know that that takes a lot of a lot of courage and a, and a lot of love too uh, for other human beings. So, thank you for that because that is a population that needs individuals like you and and, and Dr. Hall and others. So, um, uh, just a just a thank you for 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 all that you do and for also being here today. This was great. I enjoyed hearing about it and just uh, it's fascinating that difference between that population and everything that I encounter every day. So uh, I'm always really fascinated to learn about that and thank you for coming in and sharing it in such a such a great way uh, I, I truly appreciate it and um and i know our listeners do too so on behalf of all of us um thank you for investing the time with us today thank you so much i'm really grateful that you all reached out for me to be able to share with you yeah that's great jeff thank you as always enjoy the rest of the summer until i see you again and i'll call you tomorrow just so you don't feel rejected okay thanks man thanks all right <laughs> to all our listeners, thank you for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed the 40 episodes. We hope we continue to make a couple more. With that, God bless and have a great day.